Welcome to the Professional Engineer Podcast. My name is Matt Dersheimer, and I am a civil engineer and design-build project manager. Today, we are going to do an overview of the life cycle of a heavy civil infrastructure project, how these road and bridge projects are brought to life from scratch and used to meet the needs of the community. We will cover the preliminary engineering phase that performs extensive studies to investigate what capital improvements are actually needed and to ensure comprehensive compliance with all local, state, and federal rules, regulations, and laws. Followed by that, we will explore two different paths that a project may head down as final design and construction approaches, a conventional approach called design, bid, build, or a non-conventional approach using innovative project delivery methods to save time, cost, and encourage innovation. After that, we'll walk down the path of one of those non-conventional project delivery mechanisms known as design build, where the design engineer of record works directly for the contractor and that collective team performs the final design and construction of the project. We'll then dig into those distinct stages of that design build, starting with marketing your team, moving into reviewing the request for proposal, the RFP, Preparing your, letter, preparing your letter of interest, and then your technical proposal and bid price. And finally, we will overview the final design and construction process after being awarded a design-build transportation project. We'll talk about design submittals, the final permitting, the early works construction, and how to handle changes in the field, and finally prepare your as-built plans. So here we go. So here we're going to start with the project development and environment phase, the PD&E phase. Uh, this is all uh, otherwise called a preliminary design and engineering phase of the project. This is the conceptualization and planning stage of a project. Here a comprehensive study is performed to determine the needs for the local community. There is significant public involvement done at this stage where transit studies are used to determine what improvements actually should be made by the agency. Here, environmental investigation is per and permitting is performed for state and local agencies to ensure full compliance with the laws, rules, and regulations to ensure that the benefits of the project would offset the impacts that the projects would cause. And one of the primary goals of this phase of the project is to obtain a document that's issued through the National Environment Protection Act, NEPA, called the FONSI, F-O-N-S-I, which is the finding of no significant impact. And that's based on a thorough environmental assessment called the EA that is performed. This FONSI, quite frankly, investigates just about everything about the project. Things such as the socioeconomic and sociocultural effects that the pro proposed project will bring, the effects on farmland, on traffic, on state, local, and federal parks, on the archaeological and historical resources that may be within the project limits. And the list really goes on, and, and I'll probably miss some here, but we also look into wetlands and other surface waters, if that they will be impacted by the project. The, the wild and scenic rivers that may be nearby, uh, the floodplains that the project would be crossing through. Are we near a coastal zone and there are, are there coastal barriers nearby? Are there any protected species or protected, ha protected habitats within the limits of the project? 
What about essential fish habitats, if this is going to be influencing water? Is there going to be an adverse effect on air quality associated with the work? What about contamination, existing contamination out there from uh, perhaps some old uh, gas stations or something like that? Are we going to be causing significant burden to utilities or railroads? And also the effect on traffic noise that would be generated by the project and near the surrounding area. At the conclusion of this PD&E phase, there will be a slate of environmental and community commitments developed that will be honored through the design and construction process. The environmental assessment followed by the FONSI and the permitting applications that are preliminary developed at this time will outline all those commitments. Now overall, this phase of the project is extremely important to make sure that the proposed improvements are actually needed. And on future episodes, I will welcome on guests who work on this project startup phase to learn, to learn more. So now I want to talk about conventional projects and non-conventional projects. So first, a conventional project. What this is, and it's commonly referred to as a design bid build, is when the owner, typically the state transportation agency, hires a design engineering consultant. That designer then designs the project based on the uh, findings of the uh, preliminary design and engineering, the PDE process. They design that project to final plans that are ready for construction. And then they provide those plans to the owner who along the whole way was providing input in the design of these plans. So then the owner takes those plans and issues it to contractors who are interested in bidding to perform that work. Those contractors will then review the set of plans and, and put together a comprehensive bid and likely schedule to accompany it as well. And they will provide those bids and schedules to the owner who will then award the project the majority of the time based on low bid from the contractors. And then from there, the construction will begin where the contractor will build from that set of plans. He has the opportunity to make changes to those set of plans at his own cost. And the owner and engineer, uh, the original engineer must approve those changes. But overall, the construction would then proceed and you'd finally have a completed project. So that's known as a conventional project, a conventional design bid build project. Now, I want to parallel that here with a non-conventional project, which is kind of opens up a whole slate of things here, a whole lot of new opportunities. So now I want to talk about non-conventional projects. And there are many different approaches that could come through a non-conventional delivery. Conventional being design, bid, build, and then everything else being a non-conventional project. So the first one I want to focus on is called design, build. And the way this one works is instead of the design engineer of record of the final plans working directly for the owner, which is the state transportation agency, instead the contractor and engineer will form teams to pursue a project and those teams would 
put together their qualifications and then their technical proposal and then ultimately their bid price in order to try to win the final design and final construction of the project. And this is called a design build and we'll, we're gonna talk about that in more detail here in a minute. But there are other types of non-conventional projects. One is called a design build, finance, operate, maintain. A DBFOM, quite the mouthful. But what this one is, just like the design build, there's additional components tied to this one. The financing component, the operations and maintenance component. Now this comes into play when you have toll roads and when the state agencies are looking for funding sources for these massive projects. And this is when those design build teams would also team with a, a financing and, a, and an operations and maintenance team to provide the funding and the long-term operations and maintenance. That actual entity would collect the toll over a period of time and use that toll revenue to maintain the installation as well as to recoup some of their uh, capital investment through the financing component. An another type of uh, non-conventional project here is becoming increasingly more common to be used because it, it allows the owners to maintain a little bit more control. And this is called a CMGC, a construction management general contractor type of non-conventional project. And here, the way it works is the owner will hire a design consultant based on qualifications. And the owner will also hire a general contractor based on qualifications. And then that team of those three, the owner, the contractor, and the designer working in tandem will develop a set of final plans for the project. And then that contractor has an opportunity to provide a hard bid price based on those plans. And then if the owner determines that that bid price is appropriate for the work, then they can choose to award that to the contractor. Or if the owner determines they'd rather send it to bid, they could still then send that out to bid and allow other contractors to take that set of plans and go bid on it. And with this one right here, it allows the owner to retain a little bit more control while still taking advantage of all the benefits that a design build type of project can offer through the contractor providing input on highly technically challenging construction projects. So now I wanna focus specifically on design builds. Let's talk about the life cycle of a design build project. So there's a pre-advertisement phase. This could occur you know, years before a project is advertised. And an advertisement is defined as when the owner officially releases a request for proposal and establishes milestone dates that contractors need to meet. But prior to that date, you're in a pre-advertisement type of phase. And this is where senior management of contractors and designers uh, meet up and form teams to pursue these projects. Um, so ultimately, different designers start working with different contractors and some stick with the ones they've historically worked with and others, and others go to try to build new relationships with new teams. This is an opportunity for that team to then meet one-on-one -on -one with 
the owner of the project to to market their capabilities as a team, but also more so to to talk with the owner and hear about their opinion of the project, if there's any challenges that they are foreseeing with the project and and what their individual opinions are on the work that needs to be done in order to um, best meet the needs of that client. So up until that point, the teams have done all their homework and they're ready for the advertisement to occur. Now, once that advertisement occurs, they the owner will release a request for proposal, an RFP, along with a whole uh, slate of reference documents and attachments that the teams will be able to use to build their proposal. This includes concept plans, it includes the comprehensive environmental assessment and the FONSI, it includes CAD files to help them get started on the plans production effort. Uh, but as soon as this advertisement occurs, a cone of silence is in place. Where previously they were able to go meet with the owner one-on-one -on -one to talk about the project, that can no longer happen because it's important to maintain that integrity so a cone of silence is established. You can only contact the owner through approved channels. And so with this draft RFP in hand and the, and the concept plans, uh, there's many different types of nuances that could then happen, but generally what owners do is they request teams to prepare uh, a letter of interest, an LOI, or sometimes it's called an extended letter of interest, an ELOI, where the teams are going to, going to provide the resumes and qualifications for their team to make sure that they have met all the threshold requirements. You need to be qualified to do certain types of work. So you need to demonstrate that you meet those qualifications. And then in addition to those qualifications, they are wanting to hear your take on the project. They want you to provide some written ideas, written understandings of the project scope. And that is a way for the owner to then determine your knowledge of the project. Have you done your homework to try to understand all the unique requirements that the project has? And, and what are your solutions to these? Because at this point, there's only concept plans developed. So how are you going to solve the challenges that this project has and they want to hear your ideas so a little bit more on the RFP before we go into the shortlisting phase so that RFP is the black and white requirements that the design build teams shall adhere to so this is where they outline all the requirements that you need to do the lane widths the the bridge lengths uh, the any sort of sidewalks or shared use paths, uh, what really every sort of requirement that this owner stipulates in there, what sort of lighting shall be in there, what sort of intelligent transportation systems like fiber optic systems and cameras and, and traffic counters and the whole slate of, of transportation road and bridge type of technology, what are the requirements of this project? And the RFP, is very important for this to be highly detailed so the teams and more specifically the owner can get exactly what they want from the project. And so after those teams prepare their ELOI, their extended letter of interest there, they'll go ahead and submit those on the date. The owner will then review them and 
for example, the, the way the Florida Department of Transportation handles this is they will then score those letters uh, typically out of 20 points. And and generally, there'll be a shortlisting where the top four teams of the letter scoring there, which is the owner scores those. The top four teams based on score will be given the ability to proceed forward with the project. And if the team that came in fifth did not meet the cut, because of the scoring criteria and because of a shortlisting being implemented there there are instances where there are no shortlisting and any team can go forward so you determine based on your score if you want to go forward or not but most recently there's been shortlistings going on so the the clearly established the four teams that will be moving forward are based on the top four scores and so after that you move into the second phase of the procurement process and this is known as the technical proposal phase. So in here, you talked about some ideas that you had in your ELOI of how to meet those requirements. So the owner gives you an opportunity to present alternative concepts for the project. And specifically alternative technical concepts, ATCs are what these are called. And basically what these mean is you have that black and white language of your RFP that says you shall do this or you shall not do that. And these ATC meetings and, and these ATC documents you prepare allow the design build teams to propose alternative concepts that the RFP may not explicitly allow, but you feel, your team feels, that it would ultimately be a better product at the end of the day, either through cost, schedule, quality, or overall all three of those, or operations and even more, maintenance. Um, overall, you feel like it'll be the better solution compared to the previous requirement, and you go through and you demonstrate that to the owner, who then has the chance to um, approve your ATC to allow you to move forward with that. Uh, or reject your ATC. No, no, we want to stick with what we originally specified. And you have an opportunity to address some of our comments, possibly, uh, to, to update your ATC. But fundamentally, what we said before is what we want. And so the, these ATCs give a really good opportunity for these teams to demonstrate their excellence, their technical excellence, through solving the unique challenges that these projects have. And this is really one of the true benefits that design builds bring is the ability to innovate and provide different solutions to the same project that will ultimately uh, reduce costs, shorten schedule duration, provide the same or better quality, enhance the constructability and the maintainability, the long-term maintainability of the facility. And even in some instances, the actual operations of the facility will be improved uh, the traffic lights may function more efficiently the level of service of the traffic light may be improved actually if there's a traffic light through this alternative concept so after that atc phase occurs there'll then be a plans proposal phase where the teams need to prepare their competitive designs it's important these designs remain competitive um, They'll prepare these design plans. They'll provide a written technical proposal outlining their approach to the project. And then they'll go ahead and submit these plans and, and written approach for additional points to the owner. So the ELOI was out of 20. 
this next set of tech proposal and, and plans and written tech proposal will be out of 80. And then at the end, those two get added up to, uh, to determine the final winner. So after submitting that, the teams then move into developing the bid price for the project and the schedule for the project. So now at this phase, while the teams are preparing their bids and their schedule, the owner is reviewing the as-submitted technical proposal, plans, and written, and they're developing their scores. And then about one to two months after the submittal of the tech proposal, the contractors will provide their bids and the owners will provide their scores. And then based on a pretty simple formula, basically your, your bid price divided by your technical score, your combined technical score out of 100 points, the lowest number of that will win. So the higher your tech score, the lower your number will be. And obviously the lower your bid, the lower your number will be. So finally that adjusted score is how the project is then awarded. And so if you're the successful team, you get to finally move on to the final design and final construction phase of the project. So now in final design, it's now your obligations that you shall fulfill all of the RFP requirements, those black and white requirements, as well as any technical proposal commitments and obligations that you provided when you developed your approach to the project. If you said you were going to add this new feature, it is now your responsibility to do that because you've committed to do that through your proposal. So now the designers get to go through the design phase here. And so it starts off with a comprehensive geotechnical investigation, a comprehensive site survey. So geotech will go out, will take soil borings to determine foundation designs, to determine uh, if there's going to be any settlement out there, to determine lateral capacities of foundations, axial capacities of foundations. Are there going to be any uh, unique, unsuitable soils that need to be addressed? We only had limited information to prepare our proposal now. Uh, are there any unforeseen conditions that we're going to have to deal with? So the geotechnical investigation is performed. Also, the utility coordination begins where the there may be utilities that require relocation as part of the project. and you need to go out and investigate the actual depths of those utilities. Where are those utilities vertically and horizontally in the world relative to where your work is? Do you need to relocate those utilities? And then you need to coordinate with that utility to find a new home where it can be relocated. And then you need to encourage and help along that relocation to occur so it does not delay the actual construction schedule. And so these are all the early start of the design process here, uh, obtaining all this site information in order for final design to be completed. And at the same time, you're starting to work on your roadway design, your structures design for your bridges and your walls. You're working on your traffic control plans. You need to move people around the corridor while you're building this project and you want to make it as least painful as possible. And that's what your traffic control plans will illustrate. And so you'll, you'll hit a milestone eventually after preparing all your calculations and plans, you'll hit, uh, it's known as the 90% phase. You're, and 
essentially means your design plans are 90% complete. You've met all the requirements to hit a 90% submittal. You'll submit that for each discipline, your structures plans, your roadway plans, your TCP, lighting, the whole slate. You'll submit those. The owner will then get an opportunity to review those plans, provide comments. You are then, you respond to all the comments that you receive, you close those comments out, and then you implement the comments as you said you would. And then you get to prepare another set of plans known as your final plans. You take your 90% plans, you make any fine tune changes based on the comments or anything that you discover along the way. Then you'll prepare either a 100% set of plans or a final set of plans. Generally, they're the same thing. Um, but typically, it'll be more of a 100% set of plans because there may be a couple lingering comments that still need to be addressed. So after you address those lingering comments, you're able to sign and seal your plans for construction. And then we move on to the construction phase of the project. But by the way, design is still kind of occurring. You know, there are tweaks that are being made. You can make revisions to your sign and sealed plans um, through close coordination with the owner and the contractor. But once you get that first set of construction plans that are signed and sealed, that's when the construction begins. So rather than talking about the specifics of construction right now in this podcast, uh, we'll save that for ones down the future. I want to talk a little bit about the obligations and requirements and how design engineers work during construction. And it's a phase of design called post-design. And this is when the engineer of record supports the contractor during construction. And this is done in a lot of ways, but you can kind of boil it down to four or five unique type of situations. And I'm going to go through each. So the first is shop drawings. So there are plenty of information out there that is the responsibility of the contractor to prepare their means and methods. How do they want to build bridges? How do they want to uh, provide false work, temporary supports? There, what about some detailed shop drawings for structural steel or for overhead sign structures? These shop drawings get submitted to the engineer of record for review, and then they get reviewed by us. And, and we're, we're looking for conformance with the plans and, and, and general overview of it. Uh, we're not there to change means and methods. We're there to make sure that... Um, it is meeting all the requirements of the plans. And so we review shop drawings. Another thing that we do, and this takes up a lot of our time, it's known as uh, RFIs, requests for information. Um, and these are actually, you can kind of break these into three different subtopics. You have the RFIs, the request for informations, the RFMs, request for modifications, then RFCs, request for corrections. So those three kind of end up being a lot of work and, and appropriately so. So an RFI, the best way to describe what an RFI is, is the contractor has a question about your plans. So they are asking for more information, requesting information based on something they see in the plans. Maybe something was missing in the plans. Maybe there was a contradictory information in the plans. 
one sheet said you needed to do this, but the other sheet said you needed to do this there. Please advise which is our requirement to do. And so the owner, the, the, the contractor will prepare the RFI and then the engineer will respond to that RFI in a written form to keep things uh, documented. The next is a request for modification, the RFM. Here, the contractor, even this is a design build, but the contractor, they're out there building something and you're like, you know what, I wanna make this one small little change and it's gonna provide a big benefit for me. You know, we didn't see it during final design, but we see it now that we're out in the field. We wanna make a small modification. And so they prepare a document called an RFM to outline what their change is. And then the engineer of record has the opportunity to review that modification, determine if it's acceptable. And then if it's acceptable, what sort of, is it strictly written verbal requirements that could be implemented and then reflected in as-builts later? Or is it such a large change that, that plans need to be prepared at that time immediately in order for construction to proceed? Now, most of the time these modifications are so minor that plans would not be required, but in, in some instances they are. And so the final, the request for correction, the RFC, this is the contractor basically saying, hey guys, we made a mistake. This is the mistake that we made. And then they'll either provide a proposal of how to remediate that mistake, how to correct the mistake, or they'll ask the engineer, hey, please advise how to make this mistake correct. So please provide the procedure to resolve it. Now, this could go a lot of different ways. It could be a very minor mistake that was made that can be sometimes maybe nothing even needs to occur. Um, or maybe sometimes in worst case scenarios, what they just built actually requires to be completely demolished and rebuilt correctly because the mistake that was made is ultimately unacceptable to be there for the final condition, final acceptance of the project. And it really depends on the type of uh, mistake that gets made. And, and if there's any conservatism built into the design that could be utilized to uh, offset the ramifications of that mistake. And finally, so that was the first four. Finally, the last component of the engineer record role. And, and you got to attend meetings and, and contribute to the project, obviously, throughout. But the last major deliverable that a engineer of record will provide is known as the as-builts, the as-built plans. And what this is, and, and good projects, the projects that I run, we know all the as-built requirements as they are happening along for construction. So I make sure to document everything that affects the as-built plans, either through an RFI, an RFM, or an RFC. And then that way we have an easily auditable trail of what we need to reflect into our as-built plans. But what we'll do is we'll take our original release for construction plans and we'll make modifications to that. We'll provide revisions to those plans to reflect the as-built condition out in the field. And ultimately that is what is handed over to the owner or the maintaining agency to then maintain that project for the life cycle of the project, which is, uh, Generally, it is at least 75 years uh, for bridges, and yeah. All right, guys, so that concludes this episode of the Professional Engineer Podcast. 
Thank you very much. Again, my name is Matt Dersheimer. I'm a licensed civil engineer and design build project manager. And thank you very much for your time. Have a great one.